Welcome to the Shift Daily Podcast. I'm Shane Hewitt. It's a daily bite-sized morsel of our four-hour middle-of-the-night program. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. The Shift Daily Podcast starts right now. Do you remember the bubble, right? The biosphere from so long ago where a bunch of people went and lived in this biosphere in their own world, if you will, excluded from everywhere else. It was an amazing story. And now books and more coming out. Joining me is Mark Nelson. Mark, welcome to the show. This conversation about biosphere is uh, amazing because there is the spaceship Earth um, that is out. Plus, you've got the book. Um, Let's get a couple of those things out of the way and find out who Mark is first and then how you ended up in this whole uh, journey that I guess would have changed your life. So thanks for being on the show, Mark. My pleasure. I'm strapped in for the ride. Awesome. So tell me, who is Mark? How did you come to be involved in the Biosphere Project? Oh, my God. Uh, my my real name actually is Moisha Katzenelson. Uh, so I'm an immigrant son of parents, you know, who were born in Russia and Poland, you know, came on the Great Migration in the 1920s to the United States, um, first generation. And, you know, my fate was to be an upwardly mobile, you know, academically bright, you know, kid. And I should have become a medical doctor or a lawyer to make my parents proud. And I decided that, you know, life had way more interesting possibilities. Plus, I had an older brother who had already done that. So we had one Dr. Nelson in my immediate family. So in 1969, through a great uh, series of coincidences and good fortune, I ran into a group of people who were doing theater, enterprise, and working on ecology. And they had started on a really rundown, terrible piece of land in New Mexico. And so I came out, I was 22 years old, and you know I've been working at uh, affiliated things for about 50 years. So this really became an entire path that you've been on for a very, very long time. So tell us then about Biosphere and the project, because how old were you when that really got moving and when this began? Because not all of our audience uh, is of the age group that would remember it, and some of our audience will, but it was quite some time ago when it all got started. Yeah, so uh, I I joined this group, and we founded the Institute of Ecotechnics, because our insight was that Oh, gee, I think this people can resonate to this. The way that we go about technology, ranching, farming, you know, manufacturing, transport, energy, it's all actually making war on our living world, on our ecosystems and our biosphere. So we decided to uh, kind of take on challenging projects around the world in different biomes, like rainforests and savannas and we built a ship because you know the world is actually two-thirds water. And simultaneously, we were running a theater called Theater of All Possibilities. And we believed in being self-sustaining as far as possible. So you know, we encouraged all of our members to start enterprises to carry something through from beginning to end. So that was kind of the matrix. And with that background, you know, we've been tracking the space program. And it was really clear that astronautics 
the ability to put rockets and people on short duration trips around our planet, even to the moon, etc., was advancing way, way greater and way faster than our ability to live in space. You know, basically we send astronauts out with picnic lunches and frozen food, etc. And we're not at all uh, investigating how to live permanently in space. So our interest in new ways of uh, living and working on Earth and you know, the beginning of the work of how to build systems that could sustain us long-term in space came together in Biosphere 2. Uh, it's a remarkable notion um, that you know we're moving ahead in some ways the <laughs> not all the same ways at the same time sustainability is always a big thing uh, mark i am going to ask you to lean into that microphone just a little bit so we can get a little more volume uh, that would be awesome so tell me how old were you what age were you uh when you got into the biosphere 2 well okay when i got into biosphere 2 i was 44 years old mm -hmm. and you know so i had two birthdays in there and came out a I kind of transformed and, and re, uh, regenerated a human being after two years. But the Biosphere 2 project was so huge, uh, it was such a complex endeavor that it began in uh, seven years before we actually started the first two-year closure experiment. So it dominated my life from my mid-30s to my mid-40s. That's a that's a pretty pivotal pivotal. That's a pretty pivotal time in everybody's life. You know, typically there's I would say we all go through a bit of an awakening at that time where we start to realize that some of the rat race life we've lived maybe not for us. Um, you know, midlife crisis often it gets referred to as uh, not much of a crisis. I would say I think it's a nice awakening. That timing must have been um, not lost on you as you step away from what is normal life and step into the biosphere with a limited number of other humans for two years. You know, of course, I, I had not been living a typical life uh, <laughs> up to that point, or maybe a more normal life. I think most average human lives right now are a little distorted at this early stage of our industrial revolution and Anthropocene. So for eight years, I worked as an organic farmer, planted an orchard here in New Mexico, then I went to the outback of Australia. You know, I was mentioning we we like to take on challenges and challenge ourselves in an increasing manner. So from 160 acres in New Mexico, we bought uh, 5,000 acres in northwest outback Australia in a typical, you know, trashed uh, tropical savanna area. So that was the background, but Biosphere 2, of course, was another level of endeavor. I mean, I, I, hubris, karma, uh, were we out of our minds? The, the, uh, the minor premise of the project was that we could build a mini biosphere, and that required extraordinary engineering because to make a separate world, you have to make it airtight and to make a structure with ceilings that, we're 75 to 85 feet tall, you know, to house our rainforest uh, trees covered, uh, I don't know if we're metric or English, 1.2 hectares or little over three acres. To make that facility airtight itself was an engineering marvel. And then to pack in kind of a representative cross-section of Earth's biomes and an organic farm to support eight people 
I mean, it was uh, it was a lot to chew on. And it was eight people, right? Yeah, eight people, four women, four men. And did you know these people before you got in? Yeah, no, I mean, we had been training as biosphere and candidates, and almost all of them uh, had worked at eco-testing projects. There are a couple of uh, exceptions. Our doctor, uh, Dr. Roy Walford, was a professor at UCLA Medical School, Linda Lay. We met, she was a very committed uh, ecologist working in Tucson. But, you know, we all worked together building Biosphere 2, training to be Biospherians and hoping we would be in the final selection from about 15 or 17 people, you know, the eight that would actually go in for the two years. So we knew each other really well. And then the two years together, <laughs> that's a whole other story. Very challenging, very difficult at times, quite exhilarating. We're an amazing team. But... You know, the human element of Biosphere 2 is probably the most difficult. Well, and it was not the surprise. I mean, you went into this thinking that the ecology was going to be the challenge and how do you live in this? But the reality was is the maybe the internal battle of the soul became, you know, really the driving force of trying to survive? I'd like to say yes, but the answer is no. Really? Anyone who studied isolated groups, you know, there have been virtual riots between the scientists and the U.S. Navy people who support them and at the U.S. Antarctic bases. You know, it, it's pretty well known. And, hey, look, you know, we're human beings and conflict and, you know, cliques, factions, disagreements, personality disorders, you name it. Uh, you know, when I look back for two, and, of course, you know, when you're in a closed system that's caught the world's attention, everyone's really, really focused on your drama. And I decided to go back and get uh, graduate degrees because of the technology I got inspired with that I was in charge of in Biosphere 2. But I looked at the, the relations uh, at the University of Florida between the, the professors, not to speak of the students. And I was thinking, oh my God, I think things are really peaceful and we we're really united in Biosphere 2. These people would slit each other's throats if they could. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where the things start to come out. I mean, internal dialogue is a big one for me, and I would imagine that sometimes would just be rampant of the things that you, that you're going through. I mean, there are many shows that have come out um, that have been sort of, you know, reminiscent of of this storyline. The Truman Show was uh, was sort of <laughs> yeah, right, right. Like, I mean, that was a little different version of it, but kind of the same. You know, you know, I'll admit it, uh, Shane, because you've got me talking. But I think the worst thing that that can be said about Biosphere Two is that it was the inspiration for reality TV. Yeah. Because you know, Biosphere Two, we expected it to be a really quiet R and D project, and you know, it was privately financed by Ed Bass. He was the director of my institute, and you know, for a oil-rich, uh, you know, Texan. He was pretty visionary. He is very visionary, very uh, maverick. Uh, and he had decided that 5% of his wealth he was going to use as he damn well felt like. And he was a big lover of ecology. So he funded a lot of things aside from Biosphere 2. But anyway, so when we caught the world's uh, imagination, and I think it was a tribute not to our genius, but there's a certain hunger in people to really understand who are we? 
who are we and what is our situation here on our little planet third you know third planet out from the sun you know what is this, what is the big story here and it's hard to imagine you know for people living now but you know when we started the project and and right up until 91 when when we went inside for two years we had to spell the word biosphere to people they had no idea what the word meant sustainability was an obscure word that a few academics and visionary people were talking about climate change was just a distant you know problem on the horizon and suddenly here's this project that's called biosphere 2 well where's biosphere 1 of course we named it you know with uh, good intents in mind we wanted people to ask that question and we wanted to say to them well biosphere 1 is the only biosphere we know and it happens to be your home planet and your life support system. So it, it sort of touched this nerve. And I think it was because people could suddenly see in the small model, a little insight into the human relationship to our huge Earth's biosphere. So when we talk to um, astronauts, quite often when they're up in space, they look down on Earth and they see it as how small we are and how we only have one place to live and how incredibly important it is that we take care of that place. When you're in biosphere two and you're sitting in there and you're realizing that that is the only world that you have, it's limited. I mean, uh, on the planet, we often don't see that it's limited. Does that change the perspective on how focused you were about the world and how we need to take care of it. And this is all we have. Does that perspective change for you? Yeah, totally. And, and if we have time for it, I'll tell you what actually, I, you know, so I was a big shot. I'm still the chairman of the Institute of Ecotechnics, big fish in a small pond. We're a small institute with, you know, with grand uh, and historic uh, goals in mind. Uh, I will amend that. But we built a small test module, you know, basically the size of a, you know, slightly large living room. And we packed it full of the living systems of Biosphere 2. It was also our test bed to see if we could actually seal. Very challenging to make something, you know, we, we usually build buildings to like keep raindrops out of it and wind out of it. But to actually build something that's airtight is another level of difficulty. Anyway, so this structure was sitting there. We had a couple of human, three human closures, and it was sitting there kind of forlorn. And, you know, the, the project manager said, well, why don't, why don't we invite anyone on staff who wants to spend 24 hours in there? And so I raised my hand, and within five minutes, I would say, of being inside that Bias for Two test module, I realized at a much more, way more profound and bodily level, the understanding that would only deepen within bias for two about how metabolically, metabolically, that means every breath that you take, every drop of, of water that we drink, we are connected and part of a living world. So, I mean, and, and clearly from my backstory, I've been working on being, you know, ecologically conscious. I'm a big tree planter and tree hugger, I confess. But I realized in those first five minutes that mostly that was up in my brain, up in my mind, there were thought forms. 
And suddenly I got it in my body. It, it's difficult to put this into words. So I, I'm reduced to, you know, it got down to a cellular visceral level. And in a small world, and this is true advice for two, that you could walk around, you know, at a leisurely pace in 20 minutes, you could actually see all of the plants in Biosphere 2, and, and then you realize there is what they are what is keeping me alive. That that realization was even more immediate and profound in that test module. And it's such a relief to come out of fantasy and actually wake up to being and a little word about the term that we invented for the crew, biospherians. You know, sure we could have been Echonauts or bionauts or some kind of uh, you know fancy dancy term, but you know pondering it, you know we came up with the word biospherian because that's what everybody on planet Earth is. Although mostly we don't really realize that, we don't get the implications of that. But when you're in charge of, you're not in charge of running a small world. Life does that. When you're in charge of keeping all the technology going that supports that life, you're in charge of studying it, of being, I like to term it, you know, we were the personal assistants to the life inside Biosphere 2. If we saw invasive species threatening biodiversity, out comes team biodiversity to try to save the, the rainforest from being smothered by passion vine or morning glory vine or, or whatever. And it's a, it was an amazing uh, revelation. So that insight I got in Biosphere 2 only deepened and deepened and deepened while I was in, in uh, excuse me, in the test module in Biosphere 2. And all eight of us, I think, were profoundly transformed by that experience. So you were saying that, and, and I've seen, you know, clips of the, you know, we came out, a big reentry ceremony, the reentry to, to planet Earth. And I remember in, in, you know, in the sort of semi-impromptu speech that I gave, I said, living in a small world where its limits are so palpable changes who you are. So who are you today that's different when you walked into that biosphere? You know, <laughs> it, you know, it's a difficult uh it's a difficult question to ask because, you know, we do change, you know, bit by bit by bit. But I think that insight that I got in Biosphere 2 still resonates through my organism. And, you know, so I was an organic farmer, uh, an orchardist before Biosphere 2. I am again, but I think my entire relationship to life has profoundly changed. Um, and, and, you know, we were talking before we began recording, you know, when I, when I give talks and, and speak to people and, you know, it's easy to be depressed. There are a lot of really, really difficult things and challenging and terrible things that are happening that we humans are doing to our biosphere. And people say, well, what can I do? Well, you know, the number one thing that you can do is change the way you think. This, of course, you know, I'm a fan of Buddhism, not a Buddhist. And the Buddha said, you know, the path begins with changing the way you think. And we live in this illusion that the environment is something outside of ourselves. And that kind of leads to this terrible, I, I think some of the worst phrases in the English language are, you know, nature separation you know, syndrome. 
this feeling that we're unconnected to the world, to great nature, to you know what every every pagan and every Aboriginal and tribal culture has understood is that the earth and their part of it is sacred, and we're you know I I I, I want to keep my humility here. You know, we humans, we're children of the biosphere. You know, so the first thing that you can do is wake up. You know, that's what the Buddha means is the awakened one. Wake up. And, and what a wonderful thing to wake up. You're not isolated. And, and of course, right now in this semi-lockdown pandemic world, you know, you may be physically separated in a way in your apartment or house. But you can look outside and glory in the trees or the house plants you have already. You're still you're still metabolically a biosphere. And then you know the next thing is fall in love with your piece of the biosphere and the biosphere. And then see what happens. Mark, it's amazing to think that coming out of the biosphere. And with the realization that all your life you've just been living in the biosphere that is the world, um, taking it and, and shrinking it down into one small experience, um, including, you know, two years, not a small experience, but in the, in the grand scheme of all the life, it, it is, a, you know, a smaller piece of your time. And so to think that we could all take from this the perspective that we are actually living in the biosphere now. And when we look at what is lockdown and all the things going on, you know, our biosphere bubble has shrunk, but we still are living in the same world all along. I think that's an absolutely remarkable uh, perspective. Mark, I want to invite you uh, to another conversation um, because from this, I hear the I hear the the biosphere, the world part, but I also hear the human experience part. And I would I think that we're not doing it justice if we don't continue the conversation uh, about the human experience part. I think I want to learn more about how you've taken from before and then during and then after and integrated into your thoughts, into all the pieces. Because I don't know if we were on Gilligan's Island, if you will, where what would it drive us crazy? <laughs> Right. What what would we learn about humanity when there's only seven other people in the world? You know, sometimes um, sometimes going crazy is a very necessary part of the voyage. Yeah, and 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 you know, sometimes in order to reach your highest highs, you have to reach your lowest lows to create the contrast of what it looks like. And for me, what that hit me with is, I've always said that the worst thing that we have in our life construct is shoes. Uh, because it it's this insulation from being grounded to the earth and how incredibly good it feels when we go to the beach. That's why I really believe that vacations are so important, camping and vacations, because we take our shoes off. And I think that's why they feel so good. So I would like to dig into all of those things, though. But before we, we let you go for this conversation, um, tell me about the, the the documentary movie and tell me about the book. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so... Um premiered at Sundance. So uh, a filmmaker, Matt Wolf, and uh, a bunch of producers, including Stacy Reese and Stanley Buckthall, you know, got very inspired. At, you know, Matt Wolf uh, confesses. And what's interesting about Biosphere is that, you know, if you're of a certain age, you know, you saw it in the news, you know, even pre-internet, it reached a billion people. But there's a whole generation that didn't. So Matt said he started seeing, you know, as he was idling around the internet, he started seeing some bias for two images. And at first he assumed that they were like uh, outtakes of a science fiction film. 
And then when he started digging and found out that it was actually a real project on a pretty, you know, pretty impressive scale, and whose story I have to say has really never, never been fully told. It's a complex story. He got inspired, so he and Stacy Reese, the primary producer, came out. And my group has, uh, you know, 50 years, we have been documenting our work, both for our own amusement and because we're theater people as well, and because we hope that what we, we're doing, you know, has some resonance and significance. They realized that they had 600 hours of archival material to tell this backstory. So Spaceship Earth uh, is a really wild uh, it's, a, it's an incomplete uh, view of the project, but it is an inspirational film about what a small group of people can do. Uh, so I encourage anyone who hasn't seen it, it's worth two or four bucks or whatever they will charge you to see it. It's a full-length uh, feature film. And uh, this year, coincidentally, on Earth Day, we brought out the second edition of Life Under Glass. This was a book that I wrote with two of the other Biospherian crew. And we actually completed the book before we came out uh, for the, after, or during the two years. And we decided to update it with you know, looking back on underscoring the relevance, the lessons, the significance of Biosphere 2, chapter and research highlights, what the crew did afterwards, et cetera, et cetera. But we left the text intact of the original book so for people who get intrigued with, you know, what is it like to have that immediacy of being connected and responsible for a small living world, it's kind of a document for excellence. So the book is called Life Under Glass, and the subtitle is Crucial Lessons in Planetary Sustainability from Two Years in Bias for Two. Hmm. All right, so that's the book. Uh... Life Under Glass, and then Spaceship Earth is the, the show. Uh, it's worth the look. Mark, um, I look forward to the discussion about the humanity part as well. So we'll, we'll let the, uh, the smart people uh, organize the schedules. I would like to have you back on for an extended visit again uh, as soon as possible uh, to get into that. Thank you so much for sharing the time today. Oh, it's been, it's been a pleasure to be continued. I look forward to it. This is the Shift Daily Podcast. Are you okay with Donald Trump talking about his shower? Like his, uh, like his shower routine or like his... <laughs> Are you okay with Donald Trump talking about his shower? There's been a lot of allegations about the various types of showers he might like. Um, there has been um, concerns about him in, in all kinds of different ways with showers. So are you okay with Donald Trump talking about his shower? Not particularly. Like if I ha like, if I have to visualize it, or if it gives me a visual, then I'm not particularly okay with that. I might have to drink a lot more if that if that comes to that. Yeah, therapy time. Uh, what about you, Chris? Are you okay with Donald Trump talking about his shower? I mean, if he's outlining the details of it, maybe the marble pattern on the wall, the gold swan in the corner, um, the flamingos walking around serving canapes, then. I'm I'm kind of okay with that. Objectively, like I kind of want to hear more. Okay. It's an image man. I don't think anybody can shake from their mind, but it's true. Donald Trump and all things going on with a pending US election, with a pandemic going on around the world, everything happening, he was very very concerned about the shower. Where 
bringing back consumer choice and home appliances so that you can buy washers and dryers, shower heads and faucets. So shower heads, you take a shower, the water doesn't come out. You want to wash your hands, the water doesn't come out. So what do you do? You just stand there longer or you take a shower longer? Because my hair, yes. I don't know about you, but it has to be perfect. <laughs> perfect. And the applause. I, that's pretty funny, though. That's he must funny. be so satisfied with that. He loves nothing more than when people like him and when people yeah. laugh and clap. So um, I bet he uh, felt like a pig in mud just then. He was pretty happy. Uh, that was his big uh, his big release. Uh, technically, um, statistically speaking, I should say that most shower heads uh, in the states, it was reported anyway, actually use less um, uh, gallons per minute than is the maximum anyway. So it really has not much of an impact, just saying. But it is worth noting that if Joe Biden might have had something that he wanted to say about, um, about Donald Trump in his shower, he might say something like, come on, man. Come on, man. Exactly. Come on, man. Come on, man. <laughs> I love it. Are you okay? See, Donald Trump in the shower is a very scary notion. I, there is, I don't know, man. I, I, there's something about that that gives me, ooh, gives me the heebie-jeebies. I think the less we talk about it, the better. I just, yeah. it, is there, I mean, he starts off that clip by saying, we're going to bring back consumer choice. And I'm like, is, is there not, is there, I mean, you, you mentioned the stats before, Shane, but is there a particular demand for, um, you know, like, you know, like Harvey Milk in San Francisco won the election by campaigning on picking up all the dog poop. Maybe that um, shower heads are su is such a sleeper issue that everyone cares about so passionately that it's like, oh, he's going to he's going to bring back the, the water pressure. He's going to bring back yep. the good shower head. That might actually work. He'd be, he'd be taking away water pressure because there's more water going into right. the shower. Um in general, but I don't know. I, maybe you're right. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the secret to him winning is the uh, is Donald Trump in the shower. Dear God, can you imagine that storyline? Um, Donald Trump wins uh, wins election by talking about being in the shower. Yeah, I can't imagine that really well. I, what would Joe Biden say if that's what the election was about? Come on, man. That's what he'd say. Are you okay? Are you okay with Miami police arresting an eight-year-old boy? On the surface, I'm not okay with it, but maybe that eight-year-old kid did something to deserve being cuffed and thrown into the crowbar hotel. I say absolutely. <laughs> arrest that kid. For all the, all, the, um, all the parents that have always said, I'm going to call the cops, you know, threaten the children, and if some, something happened where the parents' bluff was finally called... Oh. And the cops came and arrested the kid? Absolutely. In my, in my house, it was always boarding school. My parents oh. were always like, we'll, we'll oh. send you to boarding school. And I was terrified. I had no idea what it was. But I was just like terrified of quote unquote boarding school. Chris, we're um, going to send you to Canada. Yeah, <laughs> that happened. Um, yeah, <laughs> a few times. Um, but yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I don't think I am. I mean, unless that kid was like, I want to go downtown. And the cops were like, all right, we'll take you downtown. But like, apart from that scenario, I'm, I'm not okay with it. All right. Are you okay with Miami police arresting an eight-year-old boy? Here's the story. 
Also on 7, the family of an 8-year-old is taking action after their son is placed in handcuffs at school. This arrest happened in 2018 when police say the boy punched a teacher. 7's Alex Browning is live at the federal courthouse in downtown Miami where the family has filed a lawsuit. Alex. Well, this mother, Lynn and Craig, says that her child's behavioral and learning disabilities are well documented. The school was the one that tested him for them. And so she's a little confused why they allowed her son to be handcuffed and taken away. Going into jail. So you need to stand up and put your hands behind your back. I can tell and I can feel how scared my son was. Let that sit in for just a second. An eight-year-old with a mugshot. Civil rights attorney Benjamin Crump representing a Key West family. We want to know who thought this was appropriate. You can try it. I don't think so either. And you can justify it. Right, put your hands behind your back. Now filing suit for this December 2018 arrest at a Key West elementary school involving their young son, who they say has special needs. He has ADHD. He has a defiance disorder. Okay. Keep your hands in front of you like this. Key West cops say it started when the boy punched his teacher in the chest after refusing to sit properly in the school's cafeteria. You understand this is very serious, okay? And I hate that you put me in this position that I have to do this. The boy wound up at a juvenile detention center charged with felony battery. Those charges, though, later dismissed. He simply was having a mental illness crisis because of his disabilities that had been well diagnosed. It's about the uh, police officers and the school officials and a district attorney's office who all thought that this is the way uh, you handle disabled persons, that this is the way you handle young children. The thing about it is you made a mistake, now it's time to learn from it and grow from it, right? Not repeat the same mistake again. It's impossible to watch. And I, I don't want, I would never want any other parent to have to watch a video like that. I don't think so either. And so that mom says it took her about a year to fight those charges and get that felony charge dismissed against her child. As for the suit, it names several people, including the officers, teacher, administrators, as well as the Monroe County School District and the Key West Police Department. In response, the police chief there says that arrest was by the books. Well, it's, um, I don't know why the school let him get arrested, I would say that way. But if it was just a normal eight-year-old kid that didn't have, like, known disabilities in around those situations, I would say then no way. But, I mean, why would the school let that happen? That's what I would say. I don't think that's on the cops. I think the cops doing their job in that case. Um, it's unfortunate, for sure. Uh, hey, Maddie, how long is the um, is the kangaroo thing? Uh, it's too short. Or, sorry, it's too long to do here. We don't have time for it? Yeah. Nuts! It was perfect! We could do it on the well. We got stuff to do on the other side, but we could maybe do it on the other side. We can do it. We can do it in case you missed it, if you want. Oh, can we? Okay, coming up with in case you missed it. Um, I so we're gonna translate some "Are you okay?" in case you missed it together here, uh, which will happen in about an hour in a bit. Okay, so here here's I'm gonna pose the question now. In case you missed it, are you okay (laughs) with Miami police arresting a kangaroo? Is the question. Dun, dun, dun. I mean, if that kangaroo, if you know, if that kangaroo is doing something to warrant being cuffed and thrown in the crowbar yeah. hotel, <laughs> I'm noticing a pattern here. If that kangaroo punched a teacher, then in, in the chest, yeah. 
Well, this is very fortunate because now in the In Case You Missed It segment, we now have two police encounters with animals. There it so, is. All right. Excellent. A little over an hour from now. This is the Shift Daily Podcast. Let's check in on some of the stories that uh, young Christopher uh, has waiting for us. Can we get right into the kangaroo story right away? What's the plan here? No, we can't get straight into the kangaroo story straight away because we're missing. Thank Come you. Come on. Come on, man. We're missing something. In case you missed it on the radio, here's New Zealand's Chris Gilbert. Well, I was going to get no. to that. I just wanted to ask first, and I, I think that Joe Biden has an opinion about the fact that we got a delay here. Come on, man. Come That's on. Quite a delay. All right. No, right, I appreciate the enthusiasm. I really do. Um, okay. So, yeah, I mean, it seems to be a theme with this segment now that we just focus on Australian critters. Um, we've got two tonight, um, and they're both doing the. Can I just ask, what is it with animals being on the loose at the moment? Like in Manitoba, there was that snake, and I think there, and was, there was a snake. Another snake. In, yeah, in, on Vancouver Island, what, right? Yeah. 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 And and so in New Jersey, no, not in New Jersey. I'm getting my stories mixed up. In Fort Lauderdale, Fort Lauderdale, Lauderdale in Florida, there was a kangaroo, and his name was Jack, and he oh, was corralled. Yeah, Jack. Uh, he was corralled up, by the police last week after he was spotted hopping down the street in Fort Lauderdale. So imagine you're out there in Fort Lauderdale in your your big tinted glasses and. And your short shorts and your short sleeve shirt and are they your, white frame glasses? I bet you those glasses have a white frame on them in Fort Lauderdale. I'm imagining brown, but sure, hmm. okay. I can go with white All frames right. and uh, maybe some boat shoes or some gator shoes. And you're walking down the street with your shopping, and, and look, there goes Jack hopping down the street. So what do you do? The only thing you can do in America, you call the cops. And uh, yeah, or you shoot you them. Well. Oh. Let's be glad they call the cops. Oh, that's sad. Well, you know, kangaroos are a pest in Australia, um, I think. Or, or maybe I'm going to get an angry texter. There might be wallabies. But they do they do, do kangaroo and, and wallaby culls on occasion. Okay. But anyway, this, this was in Florida, and here's a news story. All right, we continue to follow an unusual one in Fort Lauderdale, a kangaroo captured by police. Seven's Ralph Rayburn over the scene with more on this one. Ralph? We were sitting in our office at North Perry Airport with the scanners on listening when we heard a call about a kangaroo hopping down the middle of Andrews Avenue in Fort Lauderdale. And I don't know if I dropped the coffee or not, but uh, I was definitely listening to that scanner trying to get the address. It took him about 10 minutes for the police to re-post uh, uh, the information. And uh, uh, even the supervisors that work the area here in Fort Lauderdale uh, were saying, I got to go by and see this, if this is for real. And sure enough, the first arriving officer said, we've got a kangaroo hopping around here in the middle of Andrews Avenue around Northeast 16th Street. And you can see we still have officers here. That kangaroo is in the back of that car there, 10 Five seven seven, where you can see now FWC was called and they've come out, responded out here now, and they're also checking out the critter. Now, well, by the time we got the address launched and got here, they had just taken it into custody. And when I say custody, I mean that they had taken a uh, uh, dog leash and, and uh, managed to get it around the neck of the kangaroo and guide the kangaroo uh, to the back door, the uh, passenger side door of that vehicle and get it inside. A kangaroo on the loose 
Kangaroo taken into custody. Kangaroo's fine. Police officer's fine. Nobody was hurt. No traffic issues. I think we're gonna that's going to cover it for us. That's our story here at Skyforce HD 7 News. We'll be back after the break. A live hit for the kangaroo. That would be strange. Uh, yeah, they had a, they had they, he was in a chopper and uh, it was looking down at like I swear like five police cars in that video and this cop standing everywhere and that kangaroo was literally in the back seat of a cop car. You know, reports say that reports say that he was hopping mad. Oh, <laughs> but a, there you go. I love yeah, it. In, any thoughts on the kangaroo there, guys? Well, I would say that, I mean, it, handcuffing a kangaroo and arresting a kangaroo is probably oh. all right. I mean, because they... they Around they, the neck. A leash. Oh. A leash. Oh, all right. Yeah. Well, I was going to say so they're you, quite punchy. Yeah, you should probably handcuff... You should probably handcuff a kangaroo more than you should handcuff a particularly punchy eight-year-old boy. Um, yeah. Because th Fair those enough. guys will beat you up. Those kangaroo hands are kind of small. Small hands probably just slip yeah. right off. Well, the the hands are small. When you handcuff the feet, because those are like the. Uh, oh, that's true. It can do one of those moves where it like jumps up and kicks out at you. Yeah, the you feet are, are what you need to worry about. Those are the threatening part of the kangaroo. They're strong, yeah. like a mule. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I never heard someone say just kangaroos like are like a mule. Yeah. <laughs> oh, not a mule. Well, you know, like a horse or something, like something that just kicks really hard. <laughs> oh yeah. No, like I get what you meant, but I mean, I've never heard a kangaroo would, like was like a mule before. I just think that one caught me off guard. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Um, yeah. My, my dad used to tell me um, that uh, in Australia, everything everything hurts you, including the Australians. That's what he used to say. He also used to say some other things about Australians that I won't mention on this show. Next story. Uh, moving on. <laughs> uh, yeah. Next Australian animal. Um this time, not a kangaroo. We're back to emus, guys. We're at emus last week. We're back. We've gone full circle. We're back to emu. Away with emu, probably looking for a pub, was to, uh, taken to an animal shelter after it was captured while running through the streets of, can you guess what, North American city? An was emu, an emu was running through the streets. And was it? What do you think? Fort Lauderdale? <laughs> no. It was Joyzy. Uh, it was Joyzy. 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 Jersey. Jersey. Yeah. And um, very good. I told I it's told told Maddie earlier this was in Boston. It's not Boston. It's Jersey. I always get those two mixed up because they're kind of the mm. same in my head. Um, yeah, kind of not the same uh, in real life though. No, they're close-ish. I've been to both of them. A woman spotted the long-legged bird. On Tuesday morning, in a residential neighborhood near Patterson's border with Totowa. not I don't know if that means anything to anybody. Animal control officers, not the cops this time, but animal control officers, managed to snare the emu. Well, they snared him, which is about four feet tall. And uh, I think we have some of the animal control officers here. Yeah, we had a very strange animal run around the, uh, the Hillcrest section that you don't see in Patterson very often. Matter of fact, you don't see it at all. And the lady said it was an ostrich. She says something from a different planet. Mike Rodriguez, our animal control officer, went up there and he couldn't believe what he saw. It was the emu. Trying to figure out what it was. I got out the truck and he literally came right to me. But I didn't want to touch him because his, his nails, so I put him on a snare pole, threw a blanket over him, put him in the truck. But uh, it's safely put away in back of the animal truck now and it's going to be transported to the Franklin Lakes Animal Hospital 
who they already have someone to care for this animal. It looks like an ostrich, but, but big. But I don't want to get too close because uh, their feet could do bodily harm to you too. But I had no idea where it came from, but this is, uh, it's like nobody got hurt, didn't cause an accident, the bird is okay. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's really a happy, funny ending. Very, he spent a lot of time studying that animal to make sure that all of the pieces were safe or not safe. Yeah, there was the, a lot the, of study. The nails, nails were there. And uh, what, what did he say? It was like something from another planet. <laughs> it's just an emu, man. <laughs> I mean, Australia oh, is another planet to some, to most of us. But like, um, you know, you've got like two animals there that both have like life-threatening feet. Definitely. That's true. I, if they can't, I don't know if emus kick like a mule or not, but... <laughs> what do emus do? Well, they do have those nails, so they might, like... They, not nails, sorry. That's from the story. The claws, they might scratch you, you know? I mean, they're pretty much a dinosaur, right? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like a velociraptor. And they run really fast. I also like how he says he came out of the cop car and the emu walked straight towards him. He was like, he was like, oh hey, and the emu was like, oh yeah, can you do that again, Matt? Well, uh, yeah, he was just like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> just like picking, like Matt did a, a, a oh kind God. of like just lunging towards him, really. Yeah, and the medium fails us, but just like that sort of just lunging right toward you. <laughs> okay, so who <laughs> so wins? Impressive. Who wins in the fight? Is it the kangaroo or the emu? You know, that is probably something you could YouTube. Um, that is almost definitely something that exists, I imagine. Um, well, let's, let, let, let's break it down. Um, you know, the, the, the Australian kangaroo is naturally more bad-tempered, I'd like to say, although somewhat cuter. Um, I found has, a kangaroo versus emu fight. Told you. Let's go. Are they taking um, bets or uh, is this legal? Uh, uh, emu, well, or, uh, emu or who wins? Well, I've got five bucks on kangaroo. Put it that way. Maddie, okay. you keep keep telling your story. Ten bucks on emu. Ten, why? Boy, why do you choose emu? Fast. Someone's got to vote for the underdog. Yeah. What if he wins? Well, I well, you see, maybe the emu's not the underdog. None of us know anything about these animals. <laughs> well, that is true. That is one common thing with this with this Sh whole thing. Shane, what's going on? With the, well, with the so clip. far, like the the kangaroo is good and uh, doing well, but then he stands up and he's big bastard and then the emu's like moving his head all around and jumping up and down <laughs> kind of like looks like matt on the camera and uh so far they haven't come to any the kangaroo's eating a tree branch and the emu's standing up tall kind of looks like big bird he's anyway wagging the, his head around the emu's been ascertained the kangaroo's been ascertained yeah everyone lived happily ever after <laughs> awesome uh no there's no real winning there's no this didn't come to blows <laughs> So they're just not going to blows. Hmm. Well, I was watching the movie. What? <laughs> you want to move on? Break. No, it's not. The movie's not done. The show can wait. Oh, 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 oh. oh. The emu ran away. <laughs> that was it. That was it. Three emus, one kangaroo. Emu runs away. Uh, kangaroo doesn't even get a punch in. Come on. Wow. I'm going to watch wow. a hockey game. The fighting's better. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Tune into the show online or on the radio.